0: Amy and I are preaching together this fall, every Sunday. We're using the lectionary text, the Old Testament text, basically following the people of Israel as they sojourn through the wilderness. They've left Egypt. They're moving toward Promised Land. That's a 40-year journey, and we're following their journey these Sunday mornings. Amy is taking the gospel text. It's interesting and challenging as we put sermons together. Um, A really fun challenge for your two pastors as we put these sermons together, but I hope you'll see how they come together this morning with a message for us that we need to hear for today. My sermon today is entitled, Grow Up, and the text is Exodus 32. It's that familiar story of the golden calf uh, Moses has led the people out into the wilderness. They've crossed the Red Sea. The the uh, Egyptians uh, were killed. They're now on their own wandering in the wilderness. They go to Mount Sinai where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's there for a few days. And this is what transpires down at the bottom of the mountain as Moses is up talking with God. It's interesting To think of this story as an ancient story. Something happened, you know, 3,000 years ago to some long-lost Israelite people. I want to challenge you to hear this today as our story, too. The story of the golden calf goes like this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. If you think men wearing earrings is something new, think again. Take off your men's earrings and your wives and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron and he took the gold from them and formed it into a mold and cast an image of a calf and they said, these are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Fascinating that we are just out of Egypt. God, Yahweh, God has brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt and so quickly they say, these are your gods, They're the ones that brought you out of Egypt. You know that the Jews were the first of the ancient people to talk about one God. Monotheism began with Judaism. But it wasn't an easy transition. And the people here quickly revert to their gods instead of to the worship of God. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. Interesting, he keeps switching back and forth between the Lord, it's the divine name of Yahweh God, and the gods, plural, this idol. Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to revel. And the Lord said to Moses, now they're up on the mountain here and they're looking down on what has happened. And the Lord said to Moses, go down at once, your people. Interesting, God says these are your people, not my people. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Fascinating story. The people so quickly turned from God to their gods, the worship of idols. It might be easy for us to see this as their story, some foreign thing that we can hardly relate to. Let me invite you to think this morning with us about the gods we create. You have heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. This week, one morning, I was in my truck and coming back to my neighborhood, and I turned onto our street, and the cutest little girl, was running across her front yard completely naked. She was clueless. Her dad was right behind her. He was going out to the mailbox and she was having the best time completely naked running through the yard. What a beautiful picture of childhood innocence. Adam and Eve were just like my little neighbor. Perfect kids in a perfect world. And then real life happens and suddenly they are embarrassed by their nakedness. Now this is the universal story of our coming of age. This is the beginning of the biblical story and the message from cover to cover is clear, grow up. The biblical story is the story and the invitation to grow up. In the garden, Adam and Eve had eaten forbidden fruit and eyes were opened. They couldn't even discern good from bad before that, which is an odd twist. Their world was perfect, but it takes growing up. We call it the fall from grace. It takes falling from grace for children to truly know themselves and to know the difference between good and evil. It's an odd twist in the Bible, but it's part of growing up. It's a little bit tragic When we recognize that our innocent babes have experienced the real world, have come to the end of innocence, but that's an apt expression because growing up is a rude awakening. The whole Old Testament can be read as a story of growing up. The Israelites called into being by God's invitation to Abram, go to the land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. That was how they began. And then it's just a long story throughout of growing up. God calls. They respond. They get it wrong. God forgives. The cycle repeats over and over. We read in the prophets where the prophets keep calling the people to remember. Have you forgotten the covenant? Don't you remember Egypt? Grow up. Israel had a long childhood the bumps and bruises from learning to walk a troubled adolescence figuring out identity and relationships and not much changed in adulthood they just keep getting it wrong and it's not their story alone it's the story, the story of humanity, the Bible is telling us the story of life this is our story grow up Speaking to the ancient church in Ephesus, Paul summarizes faith succinctly. We must grow up in every way into Christ, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. This is the purpose and message of faith. Grow up. Grow up. As we continue along this journey with the Israelites, their 40-year sojourn, growing up in the wilderness... Today finds the Israelites challenged to grow up in their understanding of God. The story just keeps repeating like a broken record. I wrote those words and then I thought, I wonder how many of you out there don't even know what a broken record is. Who's ever played a broken record recently? It just keeps repeating over and over. The Israelites are constant complainers. We're tired, we're thirsty, we're hungry. And today, even after Moses has shown effective, faithful, consistent leadership, when Moses disappears for a few days to spend time with God on the mountain, the people panic. Now you would think that after all they'd experienced in the wilderness to this point, they would have had just a little trust and a little more self-confidence, but out of fear, and insecurity, they demand that authority. Insecure and fearful people always turn to some external source rather than claiming their own strength. Now, that weakness often leads us astray because authoritarian leaders are always glad to capitalize on the insecurity of fearful people. Make gods for us, they say to Aaron. We need a God we can see, a God we can hold. We want a God we create. There is an illusion of control here. If you can name it, define it, create it, you can control it. And so the people aren't really asking Aaron for God. They're demanding a deity they can control. It's not a statue of a golden calf that is the idol as much as it is the inherent notion of naming and controlling the divine. And because Aaron was not strong enough in his own leadership to inspire and encourage his people to empower them, Aaron succumbs and he creates for a weak-minded people the gods they think they need. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a brilliant young German theologian writing and teaching during the rise of Adolf Hitler. He eventually agreed that Hitler's evil left no alternative and Bonhoeffer agreed against his own ethic. He agreed to participate in a plot to assassinate the Fuhrer. When that attempt failed, Hitler had Bonhoeffer imprisoned And just months before Allied forces liberated Germany, one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 20th century went to the gallows. Now like other brilliant thinkers, Bonhoeffer's words were not always easily understood. Writing from prison, Bonhoeffer said, in words that sound strange to our Christian ears, God is teaching us that we must live as humans who can get along very well without God. The God who makes us live in this world without using God as a working hypothesis is the God before whom we are standing. Before God and with God, we live without God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was not an atheist, but he knew that just as parents raise their children to be strong enough to walk away, to live independently, free, and strong in relationship with their parents rather than in timid subservience. God also raises us to use the good minds we are given to live into the strength God gives us to stand on our own two feet and rely on one another. It's as if God is saying to us, I've given you all the tools, grow up. Maybe you can do without me sometime. Without a carefully disciplined faith, God, that word in my manuscript is in quotes, God, the idea of God easily becomes some opiate of the masses that the church's greatest critics have often accused. In our weak moments, we reach for a crutch, a security blanket an easy answer, a scapegoat, an excuse. And out of that insecurity, we create God to be just what we need at the moment. The greatest idols are not physical icons, a golden effigy of some great ox. The greatest idols are ideas mental concepts that become hardened in our hearts and minds. The greatest idols are the pictures of God we create in our own image, those definitions we form out of our insecure need. The greatest idols and this is just as relevant today as it was for the ancient Israelites. The greatest idols are ideas and concepts and images of God that are made to form, to conform to our immature, insecure needs. Idolatry is any attempt to create God in our image. God, the real God Is beyond any of that, beyond our naming and conceiving, beyond our control. Bonhoeffer also spoke of the God beyond God. He knew that the true God is beyond even our very best ideas and understandings of God. St. Augustine once said, if you can understand it, it is not God. God can never be manipulated and God will never conform to our flimsy theologies. The prosperity gospel offers a God of health, wealth, and prosperity. The militarized gospel offers a God of peace through strength. The nationalized gospel offers a God of manifest destiny. The self-help gospel offers a God of bootstrapping self-sufficiency. The economic gospel offers a God of rising tides and the justifications of inequality. But God, the spirit of life and love and hope, God is beyond all of those definitions. What are your images of God, your ideas about God? Are they tied inextricably to your own identity? to your own political convictions, your own national allegiances, your own religious backgrounds? And are you open to those ideas of God being wrong? Are you willing to have God expand your ideas of who God really is? The Israelites demanded a God they could create in their own image. They wanted to control God, but the story of faith, if we can read our scripture and our own experience carefully enough, is the story of the God who is revealed in times and places and ways that we least expect. God is God, not our ideas about God. Can we be open to that experience? We live in a day of dangerous religion. Extremists and partisans use God, their ideas of God, for dangerous means. The challenge of this moment in America is for the church to grow up, to recognize that we are in a wilderness, and we must be open to the experience of the divine that is beyond all manipulations. It's time. We need to grow up. May it be so.
1: If you remember, we are in a sermon series, Journeying with Moses and Journeying with Jesus, and it's fascinating to try to make these two journeys um, intersect. So we hope that today it works. The parable that I'm going to read to you in a few minutes is a doozy, so just get ready. So much of our pastoral work, deals in bad news, showing up in the hardest and saddest moments that life can bring, speaking words of hope into the valleys of chaos and confusion and despair, interpreting an ancient story into a modern world that is still so broken. That's hard work. And then there are the moments when our work is pure joy, like welcoming babies into the world. Babies who are reminders that God is not disappointed in humanity. And then we have a ringside seat for all the many experiences of grace and hope and healing that come our way. And then there's wedding planning. I never dreamed we would get to perform weddings for so many that we took to children's camp and then to youth camp and then we sent them off to new adventures after high school only for them to return to us so that we could offer our blessing as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon their commitment to partnership. Weddings are simply fun. The love, the joy, the celebration and we have the best seats in the house for all of those weddings right up front, right in their faces, seeing every smile, seeing every whisper, seeing every tear. And we're often afforded some pretty prime seats at a reception as well. It's one of the perks of the job. We've performed two weddings in COVID days and three more ahead of us in the next four months. How lucky are we? I know what goes into planning weddings. I remember planning hours 34 years ago, and I remember the many we've been attendants in, and then I remember how many we have performed. So much time, money, and energy goes into a wedding. And while the ceremony is always the most important part, in our opinion, it's the place where promises are made before God and for a, before a company of witnesses. We know that's the most important part, but then there's always the party afterwards. The place where... We get together for the food, the dance, the celebration of the commitments that have just been made. The wedding banquet scene is their first appearance as a committed couple. It's the first place where the rest of their lives get played out with introductions and first dances and toasts of well wishes. You make the list and you hope everyone shows up. Yes, one of the best parts of the job is to have such an up-close and personal vantage of that kind of love and joy. I think about this part of our job when I read the parable today on our journey with Jesus. It's found in Matthew's Gospel. We know how wedding banquets go these days. Our expectations are higher than ever. The food and the drink are chosen. The guests gather to celebrate and watch with their own sense of joy, the love that will abound during the moments of gathering. The wedding party is introduced, culminating in the first public introduction of the couple. Then there's the first dance. Then there's dances with parents. Then there's the speeches and the toasts and the dancing to follow we know how it works well they knew how it worked in jesus day too and so jesus took an event that everyone would have understood completely a wedding banquet and he gave them a parable that would set them on edge everyone would have understood wedding expectations then as well as well as we understand wedding expectations today So, what better way for Jesus to explain that God and the kingdom of heaven was not at all what they were expecting than by shocking them with a horrible wedding banquet story. In other words, Jesus was saying, God and the kingdom of heaven, with God and the kingdom of heaven, expect the unexpected. Brace yourselves. This is the worst wedding story ever. I'm just gonna have to say, I really think Jesus was in a bad mood this day when he told this story. Maybe there was a COVID kind of situation going on and he was just fed up and over it and done because this is the worst story about a wedding ever. But I think there's something for us to learn from it. Here's how it goes in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. The king sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent another sla- other slave, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. This is a terrible story. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. It just gets worse. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, friend, How did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's the worst wedding story ever. I really wanted to skip this one. It's too hard and I'm too tired. What is there in this story that could possibly be helpful to us? What is in here for us to learn and be changed and inspired to live better and more fully into who God created us to be? This story just poses so many questions. But one commentator that I read said, Maybe the text isn't interested in our questions that attempt to understand and avoid the guest's fate. Rather, the text simply states a truth. A seat at the matrimonial banquet in the kingdom of heaven will require something more than merely accepting an invitation to discipleship. It's not enough to RSVP and then just show up. This parable was a curveball for the religious elites who thought they had it all figured out. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is who is in. This is how it works. This is who is out. So Jesus tells them this horrible story about a wedding banquet gone awry to say, Expect the unexpected with me. You don't know it all. You have misunderstood. You have misinterpreted. You have set up the kingdom of God to your own liking and your own thinking so that you and your people are in to the exclusion of the ones that are ahead of you. It's back to that whole last is first, first is last theme that is present throughout the gospel story. Caroline Lewis wrote a blog about this text, and she said, somewhere along the line, we have let go of what is central to Christianity, life, liberty, and love. And we latched on to an idolatrous Christianity that has as its golden calf a a hypocritical mix of Second Amendment rights, religious freedom, and bought loyalties. Indeed, she says, it is not enough anymore to call yourself a follower of Christ and then act as if you were asleep during the Sermon on the Mount. It's not enough to pledge allegiance to church membership without then vowing to live out that chosenness in the world. It's not enough to say you're a Christian and then stay silent when life, liberty, and love are in jeopardy. She concludes her wonderings with, I wonder if the decline of mainline Protestantism is because we have been satisfied with just getting people in the pews, and once we get them there, we're just so happy that they showed up that we have forgotten that accountability comes with discipleship. I wonder if people aren't coming to church because our preaching perpetuates a passive faith. I hope our preaching does not perpetuate a passive faith. We will have failed so miserably if that is the case. Have we crafted a faith that is easy enough for people to join without any cost? Have we constructed a gospel story that is more palatable, more acceptable, and less in keeping with the very difficult and very radical message of Jesus for the sake of numbers and a real nice wedding banquet? The way of Jesus cannot be of our own making. It is His way, not our way. We are called to live his radical life of acceptance and inclusion and grace and love and mercy and action with the least of these as a primary focus for all that we say and all that we do. And that is a way that very few will actually want to follow. It is fitting to ask then, do you want to? Do you want to follow the way of Jesus? If so, buckle up. It's a way that is not full of glamour and easy living and good food and first dances, but it is a way where many are called, but few will truly answer the call. Could we be among the few who do. May it be so. Amen.